In our text today, we'll see a man who has little to say regarding himself. Everyone else wants to know who he is, but he doesn't give them much of an answer. They're coming and asking, who are you? And he doesn't really give a straight answer. He's very short, very concise. And there's few people like that today. Very few people who have little to say about themselves. Most people think they know who they are, and they want everyone else to know who they are. They want the people to come say, who are you? They want to be asked, who are you? But John does the reverse of this in this passage. He's not too concerned about who he is, but everyone else seems to want to know, who is this John figure? In order to effectively point people in the right direction, that is, to Christ, we need to have a right view of who we are. We need to know who we are. And John the Baptist pointed people to Christ so effectively because he walked with humility in regards to himself and with praise in regards to Christ. He's thinking not so much of himself and a lot of the one he's pointing to, namely Christ. And the irony is, is that through this pattern of humility saying, basically, I'm nothing, uh, I must uh, decrease, he must increase, through this pattern, he actually becomes the greatest of the prophets in the old order. This is what Jesus says of him. So today, we're going to ask that question, who is John the Baptist? And also, by extension, who are you? As we look at that, we'll see how we can also answer that question, who are we, when we look at this text. We're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. John writes, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your text this morning, this text that we profess to be inspired, we pray that you would inspire us through it. That as we encounter your words, we pray that we would encounter the one who has spoken them. We pray that we would encounter Jesus And Lord, we pray that as we encounter him, we would be told who we really are, that we would have a right understanding of who we are as we stand before a holy God. And Lord, we pray that through that, you would help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to be like him. That one who has told us who we are, we want to be like him. So, Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully uh, through my words. Lord, if there's anything that I say that is not of your will, Lord, I pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other, Lord. But I pray that you would speak through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the the foolishness of preaching, uh, that some might be saved, that some might have an encounter with the risen Lord this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who is this John the Baptist. We're going to look at that in the moment, in a moment. But before we can answer that, we need to ask why are they even caring to ask who is John the Baptist, right? 
They come to this guy and they say, who are you? But why do they care who John is? And this is one of those sermons I don't typically recommend taking notes. Some people it works great for them, but I don't like it that much. I like to just listen to sermons. But this is one of those sermons where I'm going to hit a lot of verses. And if you want to be able to go back and reference those, it might be a good idea to get a pencil and paper and jot down some of these scripture references so you can go back and look later. We're going to look at some with our Bible, so be ready to flip back and forth in your Bible. But um, if you want to take notes, here's your warning. You might need to do that this morning. So, who is this John the Baptist, and why are they even asking in the first place? Well, these Pharisees, it did say that there are Pharisees coming to him. They wanted to know because what they actually saw in John is what they, they thought was an eschatological event. Really big fat word right off the bat, right? <laughs> eschatological. What does that mean? Well, eschatology means the study of last things, which most of you are probably all familiar with. Everyone talks about eschatology. What is the study of last things? Well, eschatos, it just means last things. And everyone essentially has a theology. It's what you think is going to happen in the end of the world or the end of event or end of an era. So we all have some type of, a type of an eschatology, just like we're all theologians. If you were there for that sermon on study and in one sense, we are all theologians. We all study God. We all have an idea of that. But what we need to look at this morning is what was the eschatology of the Jews that came to John? What were they thinking? What were the Jews expecting? Well, based upon the prophecies in the Old Testament, their Bible was the same Bible that we have, those Old Testament, they were expecting a Messiah figure to come in the last days. They were expecting someone that would be flesh. He would come as a king, and he would rule and reign there among the people. They were expecting that person to come. But before that person would come, that Messiah figure who would reign as king would come, there would be one who would come named Elijah. You've heard this before. This might even be in your eschatology, in the way that you think about the end days. So they were expecting one who would come, who would be a preparer, namely Elijah. You remember in the Old Testament, this man who was taken up in a chariot into heaven, and he didn't die. So he's up in heaven somewhere, and they thought, well, he's going to come back down, and then the Messiah is going to come. And that's how we'll know that we'll be here, that the Messiah will be here. So there was this Elijah figure to come, and also they were expecting this prophet in Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses says that a prophet even greater than I is going to come. So they, they believed God's word. They said, well, there, there must be some other prophet that's going to come that's greater than Moses. And if you don't know about the Old Testament very much, Moses was the figure of the Old Testament. He's this big guy that wrote most of the Pentateuch, and he's the, he's the one who God is speaking to the people through. But he says there's another one coming. There's one even greater than I who's going to come. So that's what these Jews were expecting. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles with me back to Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. And before you uh, freak out, it's only six verses. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I want you to see with your own eyes what we're talking about here. Malachi chapter 4, it's right before Matthew. It's the last book again of the Old Testament. Malachi writes, For behold, the day is coming. Think about that. The day. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evil doers will be stubble. The day is coming, or the day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's Jesus, for those of you who don't know, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now catch this. Here's the part I want you to really hone in on. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, so they were anticipating this great and awesome day of the Lord that would be prepared by Elijah. And think about where they are in the context of history. This is the last book of the Old Testament. And after Malachi wrote this, there was a great silence for 400 years. It was 400 years before Matthew came and wrote anything. Before, well, I should say, before Jesus came and started speaking. So, so when they were there, there was a 400-period gap. Now think about that significance of that 400. Do you remember who else was in a wilderness period for 400 years? Right, The people of Israel were. They were exiled for 400 years, and then the Lord was going to bring them into this promised land. So you can kind of see why the Jews are thinking this way. Okay, God spoke, and it's been 400 years since he said anything. Maybe, maybe now is the time. Maybe the Messiah is going to come. So they're orienting themselves in that kind of way. Maybe the promised land is about to come. Maybe the king is about to come out from the wilderness, and he's going to speak. And maybe this is Elijah who's uh, supposed to come. So John shows up gathering large crowds of people, and they're all wondering, could this be him? Is this the Messiah? Here's, here, here is our king. The king has come. So they're thinking eschatologically. That's why I wanted you to get that in your, in your mind. So the question is, is did, they fit, or did John fit the bill? Is John this man that they were looking for? Well, they ask him, verse 19 through 21. They say, who are you? And his first answer is, I'm John the Baptist. No, it's actually not. I'm John the Baptist. That's what you would think John would say. If someone comes to you and says, hey, who are you? You're going to give them your name. You're not going to say, I'm not the Christ. But that's what John says. They come to John and say, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. So clearly John knows that they are asking of him this because they're all thinking eschatologically. He knows that what's going on in their mind. He knows where, where they're about to go with this because he's gathered lots, lots of people and he's this nobody out of the wilderness. He knows they're thinking in those kind of terms. So they say, what then? If you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? What's his answer? He says, I am not Again, here they're thinking about Malachi 4, that great day of the Lord where Elijah would come and prepare the way. He says, I'm not that guy. So they say, are you the prophet? And he says, quite simply, no. No, period. Just very short. So the eschatological view of the Jews at this time was that the, the prophet would actually be a different person than the Messiah or Elijah, just to kind of fill you in on this. But if you're wondering who is this prophet person that they're talking about, Acts 3.22, I'm not going to turn there or even go any further than that, but Acts 3.22, Peter identifies that this prophet who was foretold in Deuteronomy 8.15 is Jesus. So they had a little bit of misunderstanding when it came to theology. They had three figures, and the, the history of the church says, no, actually, there's only two. There's the forerunner, and then there's the Messiah. This prophet was the Messiah. So that's why they're asking if he is the prophet, just to fill you in there. Now, he just says no. I'm not any of those. I'm none of those guys, and I want to stop right here because this is only half of the picture that we need to see. This is one of those times where we need to think rightly about Scripture, which would be like theologically. We want to realize that Scripture interprets Scripture. You can't just take a verse out of context and say, well, that's what the Bible says, so let's just move on. 
You have to see the bigger picture, the greater picture of what's going on. So I want you to see with your own eyes what's going on in this text. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 11, 7 through 15. There's more to what's going on here than John has to say. He's very short and concise and not saying much. But I want you to go to Matthew 11 and see this with me. Again, this is right after Malachi, first book of the New Testament. Matthew 11, we're going to look at verse, starting at verse 7 through 15. I'd like to read the first four or six verses, uh, but we're just going to start at 7. You can go back in your own time and read those. Starting at verse 7, it says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. That's John the Baptist they're talking about. It says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Bigger wow. Think about what he's saying here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I want you to just note there, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven has already been inaugurated. The kingdom's already happening. He says, until now, it's suffering violence. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, catch it. Here's the big gut punch. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Whoa. Whoa, what's going on here? There's there's something big going on here. John says, nope, I'm none of those. And Jesus seems to say the exact opposite. What is going on? So Jesus tells us that John is a prophet, and more than a prophet, he is the prophet who Malachi 3.1 prophesied about. He's saying this is the guy that you should be looking for, the forerunner who's supposed to come. And he says that he's the greatest of men before the kingdom of God, the greatest of the prophets. If you think about Moses, he confirms that there is one greater than Moses coming. He even says, no, John is the greatest of all those guys in the old order. He's the last word of the Old Testament, the last word of the law and prophets. That's what it's talking about there. He's he's that one who is ushering in this New Testament, or kind of a link back to last week. Uh, He's ushering in this new order, this new world, this new way of thinking about the existence of the world. And then finally he says, He is Elijah, who is to come. Then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I think it's very important that he says this because so many times we'd be so quick to read such a literal reading of the scriptures that we'd say, well, no, this can't be Elijah because Elijah is Elijah and John the Baptist is John the Baptist, right? So we've got to be careful. We've got to read the Bible like Jesus tells us to read the Bible because we can be even more literalists than Jesus can. But Jesus tells us here that John is this person who shapes our eschatology. He shapes our understanding of what Scripture says and how to even read it. And now to just drive this bit home, Matthew 17, 10 through 13, you don't have to turn there, but here again it says it, and Jesus confirms once again in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes, that is those people who were coming to to Jesus, or to, to John saying, who are you? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? 
He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. That's pretty big. He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Elijah's already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Wow. So they say, Jesus says, Elijah came, and they don't read their Bibles right because they're not willing to accept it. So we need to be careful when we're shaping our eschatology, when we're shaping the things that we believe about Scripture, that we read it like Jesus does. We don't want to be like the Pharisees because the Pharisees did to John just as they did to Jesus. They rejected and killed him. So the Messiah has come. We don't want to reject and kill him. We want to say, no, this guy is the guy. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the king who has come. So more verses if you want to look this up in your own time to do your own research. Mark 9, 11 through 13, and Luke 1, 17. Those are the other gospels that say essentially the same thing. So what do we do with this? we got John saying this over here, and we got Jesus saying this over here. How can these two things be reconciled? It seems like they're saying contradictory things. So there's, there's three options that I see that we can do. We can say, well, we're just humbly mistaking, uh, mistaken, and Scripture really does have contradictions. It was a bad idea to have this book anyway, to bring all these books together and somehow try to say, well, say all saying the same message. That was just a bad idea, and we were just mistaken, so let's just trash the Bible and maybe just listen to Jesus. That's a bad idea. We're not going to do that. The other option is to say, well, maybe Jesus was just mistaken. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe Jesus didn't have good eschatology. Maybe the Pharisees were right. Maybe this wasn't uh, Elijah who was to come. We could say that. But that's also an awful way to read this. It's, it's not thinking straight. And then there's the third option. Maybe John is slightly humbly mistaken and was underestimating his significance. Maybe John didn't quite see the big picture like Jesus sees the big picture. And how we also, by extension, can also see the big picture because hindsight's always 20-20, right? We can, look at, we can look at the Bible and see that John was doing something even more than he realized. So obviously it's this third option. Obviously John was thinking of himself less than what he actually was. Now think about this too. If you put yourself in John's shoes, if someone came up to you and says, Miss Rose, who are you? You would not say, well, I'm someone else. You'd say, I'm Rose, right? Or, or whoever. If someone came to you, you would not say, I am someone else, right? So John wouldn't be thinking this anyway. This would be kind of a weird thing to think about. He knew what was going on there. But if you think about it, John hadn't yet even encountered Jesus. And if you think about who Jesus is, Jesus is that authoritative figure who has the right to tell us who we are. So he hadn't even met this guy who's able to say, John, you are great. You are this person. So Jesus was saying that John is this, but Jesus hadn't even got to that point yet. So this is before Jesus had even spoken about John doing that. So there's a very real sense in which there's no contradiction at all. He was literally in the act of fulfilling this role of the spirit of Elijah as he was saying these things. He was unraveling prophecy as he spoke, and it wasn't even yet complete. So in some sense, he wasn't even yet the greatest because he was still working on that role. Right? So you can see how these things work together. The Bible makes a lot of sense if you look at it rightly. So John says he's not those things, but what does John say that he is? He gives some positive affirmations too. He, get, he fills them in a little bit uh, in verse 22 and 23. He quotes Isaiah 40. So he looks back at prophecy and does in some sense say, I'm fulfilling it in some sense. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Contrast this 
with which will be looked at last week with the word. So John is in some sense kind of saying, I'm not the word, I'm just a word. I'm one guy out in the wilderness, and I'm not the one speaking, I'm a person speaking. I'm just one out in the wilderness. And what is this voice speaking? What is John saying? He's doing two things. This voice in the wilderness, one crying out, is doing two things. Number one, he's calling to repentance. He's calling to repentance. What is the second thing he's doing? Why is he calling to repentance? He's preparing people for the Messiah. John essentially just had two roles, repentance and preparation for the Messiah, who, this Messiah figure, who would bring judgment and wrath like a refiner's fire to the unrepentant, but salvation to the repentant. So he's getting people ready to encounter this one who's going to kind of divide up. He's going to either save or he's going to bring judgment. And this is why John calls the Pharisees out later and says, Who warned you to come, you brood of vipers? Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? What are you guys doing here? What are you, what are you brood of vipers showing up for? Because there's wrath coming. What do you care for? That's what John is saying. So they're preparing everyone to meet the Messiah figure who would bring either salvation or judgment. This is why you see later when John contrasts his baptism with the baptism of Jesus, he says, I baptize for repentance. There's one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does fire do? Fire refines. But we've misread that in so many ways. We think anytime we see the Holy Spirit, we immediately start to think of kind of woo-woo stuff. Well, that's the fire. Like that, that's, that's, the, that's the crazy stuff starts happening. But what Jesus is doing there, it's either an infilling of the Holy Spirit or it's a baptism of fire. It's cutting you apart, separating you, saying you are part of my people. That's what baptism does. It separates us from the world and says you are mine. And Jesus comes to give that baptism that's a refiner's fire that separates out chaff from the wheat. It's a refiner's fire. That's what Jesus is doing in his baptism. So John doesn't do the action. John's pointing to the action that's about to happen. He's essentially saying, I'm not the big deal. I'm not what's going on. There's something coming on. And that action is either wrath or salvation. He's pointing to Jesus, who's going to bring one of those two things. And he's preparing the way for that. That's why in verse 26, John admits, yes, I'm baptizing. But even my baptism isn't the same as what Jesus is about to do. This is just to get you ready for that. This is just a baptism of repentance. Come repent of your sins, but get ready for the real thing. Jesus is the real thing, and his baptism is the thing that I'm pointing to. In other words, he's humbly preparing the world to encounter the Messiah and receive him when he's right there before their eyes. And so many of them still missed it. He's saying, repent, get ready. He's coming, he's coming. The Messiah is going to be here. He's the point. One's coming, and the, the, the Holy Spirit's going to descend on him like a dove. He's coming, get ready. And they still rejected him. So while he is drawing a crowd by preaching these things, people are gathering and coming to him, he's still saying, I'm not the point. I'm the pointer. Right? That's what he's doing. He's saying, don't look at me. I must decrease. He must increase. You'll see that in the, the other Gospels. That's what John is saying. So now we understand who John the Baptist is a little bit better. That this text serves as a great mirror for us to ask those same questions to ourselves. If someone comes up to you, if a Pharisee, a Pharisee came up to you and asked you, who are you, what would you say? If you're leading a, a, a Bible study, a small group or whatever, and you start gathering a crowd and people start coming up to you and they say, who do you think you are? Think about it. We, we would have the opportunity then to answer in one of two ways. We could point to ourselves or point to someone else. You could say, well, uh, uh, I've been doing some really great things. I've been going through this book. People are really coming, and it's going really great, and it's, it's awesome. And what you're really saying is, me, 
me. Look how awesome. Look what I'm doing. And this happens in all kinds of ways. You step into a new role and things start going well and you can start gathering a crowd. Good things start happening. What do you do? So many times we, me, me, me. We start getting very prideful. We start doing the opposite of what John the Baptist does. When people come to him and say, who are you? He's not saying me. He's saying someone else. There's someone else who we should be pointing to. So who are you, church? We're tempted to think we're doing really big things. We overinflate ourselves. But when we overvalue ourselves, we undervalue our witness. And people see this. You don't have to be a believer or any, anyone to, to, to be able to see this clearly. When a person walks in pride, you're undervaluing who you are and, and your ability to point to someone else. Because really all you're doing is just saying, me, me, me. And no one can see past that. You can't see past pride. Pride blocks the ways of others. James says it this way. He says, let the master of the table call you to the honored seat. Don't place yourself there. This is what John did, didn't he? John did not place himself in the seat of Elijah. He could have. He could have said, oh, I'm, the, I'm this great one that's going to come. Look to me. I'm doing this awesome job. I'm, I'm carrying out really well. Um, it's working just as planned. But no, he says, no, I'm none of that. I'm no one. He says, I'm going to sit in this seat over here. And what you see later is Jesus, who sits at the head of the table, the master of the table, says, John, come on up here, buddy. You're really, really underestimating yourself. You're doing something really big. And God does that to us, too. Realize that. It's not just John. There's things that you're doing in your life that when you walk humbly with your God, that there's going to be a point when the Lord, the Savior, the Master calls you to the, t- to the front of the table and says, no, 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 you don't realize how big the small job that you think is. You don't realize how big that is, the implications of that, what God might be doing through you. So we have to wait for that declaration to come, though. We don't declare it on ourselves. We don't point to ourselves. When we're carrying out our, our daily lives in our workplace, wherever we're at, we define ourselves according to what Jesus has said about us already. We don't make a big name for ourselves and think about how awesome we are and tell everyone else about how awesome we are. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You don't want that. You, you don't want to be humbled by the God of the universe. The one who keeps it all in order, that that great logos, the divine logos, the one who is ordering all things, you don't want to be humbled by that. You want to walk humbly with your God. You want to walk very softly, very gently, not overvaluing yourself because people see that and it hurts our witness. So we should speak humbly of ourselves and confess, and I say confess because John makes a point to say twice, I confess that I'm not the Messiah. Let people know that whatever you're doing in life, you're not the one that's going to save them. You can't deliver them. You can't be the Savior that they might even be looking for or to you for. They might be thinking, well, this person can save me. But you have to say, I can't save you. Be humble enough to say that, to say that I can't be your Savior. But guess what? I can point you to one who is a Savior. That's our job as Christians is to say, I can't save you. I can't do it. I'd love to give you counseling and get really puffed up and feel how awesome I am because I've got all this great advice and I can, I can give you all this wisdom because I've went through this and that and you start getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you pop because God humbles you, right? Because that's what happens. We have to undervalue ourselves, not overvalue ourselves. So we can't save our, or we can't save anyone else and we can't save ourselves, but what we can do is prepare people to encounter Jesus. That's what John was doing here. He's getting people ready to meet that Savior who is to come. And that preparation is getting people to encounter Jesus in the right way. 
Because there's prideful, prideful people who are unrepentant. And those unrepentant people get to be a part of that refining process. Where, where that judgment comes. Where people are unwilling to say, um, no, I'm not awesome. They're, they're only willing to confess, no, I am awesome. I'm, I am great. And that's what our culture is telling you right now. You are awesome is what our culture says. You are, you're so sweet. You're so great. You're the best person. Just think of yourself as the best person in the world. And that's how you should live your life. And that's not the way that the scriptures tell us. We need to walk humbly. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be self-deprecating and think, well, I'm just awful. I'm the worst person in the world either. Because that's not who Jesus says you are. He says you're washed. You're sanctified. You're cleaned. That's what that means. That's why we don't keep on our old identities. When you come to Christ, you have one identity, and that's Christian. We don't get to tack on this Christian, that Christian. We are just simply Christian. You're washed. You throw away the other stuff, and you say, no, I am who Jesus says I am. So what does this look like in practice? It looks like being much less interested in telling people about who we are and much more interested in telling people about who Jesus is, that same Jesus who gets to tell them who they are, right? Because Jesus gives us our true identity. Our true identity is found in Christ alone, and we can't confess or profess what a person's identity is either. Realize that. When, when you're counseling someone, we would like to say, well, you need to be like this. You need to be like this and start to press this identity on this person when really that's not our job. Our job is to point to one who can give these per- per- people a fulfilled identity and know who they are in Christ. To be found and freed from all the things that everyone else in the world is trying to tell them who they are. That doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus says about us. What Jesus says who we are is what stands. So... Who then is John? Well, he's the one who prepared the world for its rebirth, for being born again in Christ Jesus. He's the one that did that. Think about the implications of that. This person came and he got the world ready for Jesus. This this is why it says that Jesus even says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. He's He's getting the world ready to encounter this Christ who is restoring all things, who's reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father and using us to be his co-heirs to reign with him even now. That's why he says the kingdom's already here. It's suffering violence, but it's here already. So we ought to think about it this way and let Jesus shape our, conf- our conceptions of what eschatology is, what the scriptures are, and who we are. Romans 8, 19-23 says this. I want, to, I want you to catch a couple things. This is, For the creation, we might say the cosmos, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation, we might say the world, itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, catch this, in the pains of childbirth until now. We've been using this language of being born again birthing the the world the cosmos being born again revived renewed through jesus so it since the whole creation he's using that same analogy paul is uh, that john uses we're all in the pains of childbirth until now and it says not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies so like a doula, you, know, you guys know what a doula is, that person who stands next to the one giving birth. Like a doula stands beside one giving birth and helps bring that new life into existence. So John stands next to the world and like a doula says, I didn't do any of the work. 
Right? That's usually what a doula says. After the birth has come in, they said, well, I didn't do all the work. The, that, that birthing process was done all there, and that, that was between that wife and that husband. And we say the same thing. John says the same things. He says, no, this was conceived by Jesus, the, the logos. The, the word has come into the world, and he is the one who is bringing about this new life. He's saying, I'm not doing it. I'm just preparing the world for this rebirth in Christ Jesus. And you, too, are called to the same task as a labor, a co-labor, Jesus says, or we could say like a doula. So as creation groans and labor pains to culminate the new birth, it is your task to prepare the way for another new birth in Christ. That revealing of the sons of God that it said there, all creations waiting for this revealing of the sons of God, it's not something you can do on your own, but it is something that you can prepare the way for. You can't make a Christian, but you can prepare people for it. You can prepare people to be born again in Christ Jesus. And he does that work. That's the Spirit doing that work. We can't do it. It says the Spirit blows like the wind and we don't know where it goes. But the Spirit shows up. It does his work. And we can prepare the world for that. So being born again comes by that Spirit that we can't control. You're just a pointer. You're not the point. But Jesus, who is the point, does bestow on us honorable titles. Think about some of the things that Jesus calls us in Scripture. He calls us some really great things. But we can't, call us, uh, we can't call ourselves those things unless Jesus has called us that first. He gives us those exalted seats, those elevated places as we submit ourselves to him. We let him call us to the front of the table. And even as, even as he does this, he calls us things like co-labors of the new creation. Think about that exalted title. You are co-labors. You're bringing about this newness that this world needs. That's great work. And that's why it says that John is the least... In the old order, he's the least. And he can't even compare to the smallest, or he, sorry, he's, he is the least in the kingdom of God. That, that person that is the least in the kingdom of God can't even compare to John. They're so much higher. That's you. We're in the kingdom now. He says, whoever's least in the kingdom, that's you, that's I. Who, those co-labors with Christ, we are even greater than John, who's the greatest of the Old Testament. Think about that. That's honor that God is placing on you. That's an exalted place. That's Jesus saying, you're coming up here with me. I'm a king, and guess what? You guys are a kingdom of priests. That's what you are. You are a holy people, a people set apart by God, sanctified. You are a special holy people. So church, the charge is this. We admit that we are not the light. Like John, that's what he says, I'm not the light. We say that Jesus is the light of the world, but in our humility, we're, we're reminded that Jesus has named us, what? The light of the world. So there's these paradoxical things where we think in humility, and yet Jesus brings us right back up. We say, oh, I'm not this, and you put yourself down here, and Jesus says, nope, you are. Jesus is the light of the world, and he can say, you are the light of the world. In this same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's our task. It's very simple. It's very hard, but it's very simple. Just don't think too much of yourself. Walk humbly with your God. And as you do that, other people are going to see those good deeds, and they're going to glorify your Father in heaven. They're going to do the same thing that you should be doing, saying, I'm not the point. I'm just the pointer. Let's pray.